we're continuing to really stand up these retail partnerships for wider distribution, but it really is an atypical growth strategy for a pet food brand since the logical process is to grow through pet specialty first on a regional level, then on a national level, and then you start to make it into some of these bigger mass formats. But we kind of just navigated as best we could and postured ourselves as opportunistic and really activated the partnerships that made the most sense given kind of the circumstances and overall climate. If you've heard of Casper, the mattress in a box brand, you unknowingly have heard of Terry Rockovich. Terry was one of the early employees at Casper and helped the company launch into the stratosphere. Today, she's trying to do the same thing with her new company, Jinx, a DTC dog food brand committed to helping our furry friends live their best lives. So maybe it should actually be D to D, direct to dog, huh? Anyway, as Terry told me, it's hard to make magic happen twice, especially when you're launching a brand in the middle of one of the biggest market shakeups in history. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Terry told me all about how Jinx had to pivot when its retail strategy fell to pieces when stores shut their doors in 2020. And she described how directing all of the company's focus to digital fulfillment and creative partnerships with brands like Petco, Rover, and Target landed Jinx in the front of a national audience faster than they imagined. Plus, Terry and I got into how disruptive brands can build a moat against their major CPG competitors. And be sure to take note of when and where you might be seeing and maybe smelling some doggy billboards coming soon your way. Enjoy the episode. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerceinsights. That's sfdc.co slash commerceinsights, one word. Before we dive into this episode, I was hoping you could please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps spread the word about the show, and I would really love it. So please, let me know how I'm doing and give me a rating, give me a review. Let us know. All right, enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at Mission.org. Today on the show, we have Terry Rockovich, who currently serves as a co-founder and CEO of Jinx. Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to have you on and talk all things pets today. But first, I want to talk about mattresses and your background at Casper, because I think that's a really fun story and awesome how you have co-founders from there too. So I was hoping you can kind of touch on your background there before we dive into Jinx. Absolutely. So Casper was a pretty incredible experience and we borrowed so many strategies from that growth playbook to apply to our own business. But we were all pre-launch employees. And so we met and had, you know, the opportunity to ride this rocket ship really. And 
not only grow our respective teams, but really work together collaboratively and cross-functionally. Um, and so, you know, my co-founders and I were first co-workers uh, and then we became friends and now we're business partners. And so um, that evolution is full of different dynamics, but I think some of the most important are just foundations of trust and communication. And so that's one of the most incredible experiences or value adds that I, I took from Casper specifically, but that brand was just so well-timed, I think, to be disruptive in a category mm -hmm. that was very ripe for disruption. And, you know, at Jinx, we created a brand with a product offering that was superior from a digestibility and taste perspective. And we really believe that having an amazing product is table stakes for playing in any of these arenas um, with so many options. And Casper had a really amazing product but it was copy and pasted so quickly by other bed in a box brands. So we really yeah. made sure to build a moat around our brand, our brand and product positioning in order to attempt to avoid that because we're also in a category that's dominated by big CPG with a lot more money to spend on marketing and product innovation than us. And frankly, just a lot of options that, that create a lot of noise for the consumer. So there's a ton of parallels. And I think that uh, mattresses are certainly much different than dog food, but the synthesis of the idea to disrupt something to make it better is, is definitely shared. Yeah. I love that. So tell me a bit more about Jinx first, like whose idea was it and what was the driving force behind making better dog food? So it's kind of like as a dog parent, I think we were all craving brands that provide a higher quality, pantry-friendly, all-natural food that your dog actually enjoys eating and truly overhances his or her wellness by improving their health. So our vision was to create a superior product that was shelf-stable and competitive to what exists in bags today with multiple access points at a more attainable price point. So it sounds like a mouthful, but what we did was really broke down the experience from shopping and selection through lugging that bag home and then also pouring it into likely another container um, and then actually the, the feeding experience as well. And we tried to solve and optimize for all of those specific moments in time. And so we were pretty determined to solve for the hassle of buying dog food in the store since mm -hmm. it's so heavy yep. and getting it back to your home alongside other items is a task in itself. Optimizing for uh, replenishment needs by creating a flexible automated subscription that shows up your door when you need it. And then designing a diet that's just generally more appropriate for modern dogs, dogs since the, the bulk of premium posture diets are packed with just an abundance of protein that moderately active dogs simply don't need. And if I may just unpack that a little bit more, um, when we were doing our initial research, we uncovered a pretty alarming stat that 56% of dogs in the US are clinically obese. Um, and there's over 90 million domesticated dogs in the US, which leaves us with a lot of plump pups. So when a dog is receiving an over delivery of any one item like protein or fat, it typically stores as fat. And that paired with limited exercise presents a major health issue. So we really were focused on a nutrition philosophy um, that is much more appropriate for the majority of dogs that pet owners can relate to because they have them. And then also, you know, again, trying to design uh, a convenient digital shopping experience and delivery experience for dog parents resulted in, in where we are today. I love that. So since you guys have launched, 
Have you seen others popping up around you? Because I feel like, you know, when thinking about building the moat, you could say, you know, back when, when Casper was starting, they were building it by having a better product and convenience and all that. And then when you guys are starting, you have way better ingredients and, you know, ease to be able to have it right to my doorstep. And like, do you see people popping up now where they're like, oh, I see what Jinx is doing. Like, okay, we can just start incorporating those same, you know, ingredients as well, or the same marketing message. Like, what does the industry look like right now? The short answer is yes. Um, but there's not so many that it's not manageable um, or completely threatening. And I think at the end of the day, you know, we're all trying to launch independent, privately held brands to compete against big CPG. And so I actually think if we rally together, we can create some real momentum um, and drive significance in terms of collectively assuming some of the market share that's open um, within the category. But Uh, I would say that the subscription commerce landscape as it relates to dog food is dominated by fresh. Mm -hmm. And so we're often compared to fresh formats, but we are dry format, we're shelf stable. We provide clean label products across a core diet or a base diet, and then also some adjacent categories. So treats, dental chews, and toppers. Toppers are like meal enhancement tools. But by creating an offering that's available first through D2C and then through retail partnerships, We are differentiated in the fact that we have something that can very easily scale into retail, Mm -hmm. um, something that you can sign up for in a replenishment program, um, and then opt into loyalty programming that really rewards you for continued purchase behavior. And then also there's no real kind of customization component to our diet. Uh, We have really formulated something that is appropriate for modern dogs of all breeds, ages, and sizes. And so with that, and because there's no kind of tailoring to really specific conditions, the diet is, is really accessible to the majority of the market. And in that sense, um, it just allows for wider distribution and quicker distribution. Yep. Got it. So I want to talk a bit about your retail partnerships, because I heard maybe in the early days, you had a partnership with a specialty pet food store. And then during the pandemic, it went out of business. And then you said you basically had to like scrap your entire go-to-market playbook and do something completely different. But then now I know you guys are in Petco. So I want to hear about, you know, that uh, waterfall experience because it sounds intense being like, here's what we're doing. And now we're not doing that. And now we're going to go try this again. Like, tell me about those pivots. Absolutely. So if I take a step back, the timeline is, is pretty crazy in the sense that we We really worked on the formation stages of the business in 2019. We were prepped and ready to soft launch at the top of 2020. We launched the website very quietly and made sure it was working and people were getting their food and they were happy with the delivery experience and the feeding experience. And then we were really getting ready to step on a larger stage and announce our launch when the pandemic really was at its height and the political arena was was heating up. And so there wasn't really a moment that felt appropriate to launch this announcement of a new dog food brand coming into the category through a D2C model. And so we had assembled and lined up our first retail partnership. And because it was regional specialty and because they were forced to shut their doors indefinitely, Um, we really just disassembled that contract. And I mean, we were so far along that our food was in their fulfillment centers. Their staff was trained. (laughs) We had committed to co-marketing efforts and initiatives, and we really had to just scrap it and pivot. And so the immediate solve was to look 
through digital partnership activation and do things with brands that were like-minded, had shared values, and just generally were kind of chasing the same customer base that we were. And then as we thought about wholesale beyond that, um, we really became a right partner for brands that were basically scaling their assortment through e-commerce because so much purchase activity had shifted online. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, we got the opportunity to partner with Petco. We launched with Petco and it would have been the fall of 2020. And then that partnership in itself unlocked several others. And so we were the exclusive food partner for Rover.com and they've obviously got a huge base of pet parents. And then we went into Bloomingdales.com. It opened the doors to Target.com and then eventually Target stores. We're continuing to really stand up these retail partnerships for wider distribution, but it, it really is kind of an atypical growth strategy for a pet food brand since the logical process is to grow through pet specialty first on a regional level, then on a national level. And mm-hmm. then you start to make it into some of these bigger mass formats. But you know, we kind of just navigated as best we could and postured ourselves as opportunistic and really activated the partnerships that made the most sense given kind of the circumstances and overall climate. Yeah, that's super smart. I mean, I just had a guest on the show. He was saying a lot of people are looking at these new DTC companies that are staying strictly DTC and they don't want to mess with retail and they're being kind of coveted as like the highest growth companies out there. But if you actually look at the SKUs within Target, within Petco, there's brands like you all who, you know, maybe have much more explosive growth and are able to tap into, you know, the retail locations and the customers in a lot more spaces than just like one direct line to a consumer. I mean, how did you guys structure those deals? Because I'm sure a lot of people are listening like, well, I want to be in Petco and, you know, Target and all those places. So I think it's really important to make sure that your product is retail ready from the start, from both a packaging and shelf stability perspective. So without having to figure out any of the painful logistics around, you know, installing refrigeration units or scaling complicated supply chains, uh, we really tried to solve for all of that up front through launch. So when partners came and wanted to expand their categories and they were looking for premium brands to add to their shelves, we were ready to go. Mm-hmm. And we knew it would become a growth asset much earlier in our timeline since the bulk of purchasing still happens in stores. And so we've really just designed to accommodate for um, for that. And specifically as it relates to the negotiations, I mean, wholesale has a has a pretty tight margin and and that's kind of built into vendor agreements. I think what we fought really hard for was marketing support Mm -hmm. and also real estate in store. So instead of just being in line in aisle, we really wanted to pop or be given some real estate where we could really kind of share our brand story or our product value proposition um, because we are new and without having heard of us, like how do you win at the shelf without some type of dialogue or voiceover or marketing collateral? So that's what we really fought for through vendor agreements and negotiations. And then the the margin piece is, is pretty standard depending on kind of the product offering and category. So, I mean, as a new brand, how did you fight for that though? I'm just imagining, you know, an up and comer being like, I want to be at the end of the, you know, aisle and I want to make sure you help promote us. I mean, I love that confidence and I think everyone should do that. But like, how do you actually, you know, make sure these retail partners even want to give you that and want to partner with you in that way? Because I can see a lot of people just getting in and being like, well, all right, I'm here. I'm happy. That's all I wanted. And not, 
even thinking about like, okay, what should I ask for now that I'm in? So like, how did you structure that relationship in a way where they were willing to promote you? Well, I think the reason we even, you know, had the opportunity to host those conversations was because we were an interesting brand based on how we look, how we sound, how we feel. And really um, because of the customer that we are targeting, which is kind of this affluent millennial dog parent. And so I think that there is definitely some hunger from larger mass brands to partner with smaller, cooler brands to kind of bring some freshness to various categories. I think Target specifically has done it with a couple of direct-to-consumer brands and, and really found a lot of success with it. So we were trying to use that same formula and really kind of catch some of the momentum from brands that have come before us outside of the pet food category um, to think about, you know, some of the cool things that we could do to promote the retail partnership and and doing that through marketing and influencership um, and advocacy was really kind of what we pitched as being the supporting mechanism to make the partnership successful. What were some of the brands that you were looking at and maybe taking some from their playbook of like, oh, I really like this in-person experience that they did, or, you know, this marketing campaign that I saw, like, was there anyone that you were watching and kind of maybe playing after? So Casper uh, had expanded its first retail partnership through Target. Mm-hmm. And so we had full insider, you know, visibility into that playbook. And because, you know, my team was responsible for actually standing up and executing the geo-targeted media efforts, we knew what was successful and what worked and what was not so successful. So we really kind of started with focusing our dollars on store activation across the 400 plus stores that we launched in. But I would, I would just generally say like Harry's was another brand that had built a really significant direct-to-consumer business and then popped through store formats, mm-hmm. uh, IRL store formats with a really big presence. I think some of the other brands were another razor brand was Flamingo. We saw Lola, the tampon brand launch. Um, and then most recently, Row of, uh, of Roman mm-hmm. uh, launched in Walmart. And they had a pretty incredible launch plan because they went from you know zero to 3,000 or 4,000 doors. And so wow. it's like you see... Yeah, you see these digitally native brands across industries or across categories kind of doing things, um, but really having these, you know, I think significant marquee launch moments mm-hmm. um, and really, I think, unlocking scale within weeks that is just not achievable online because of the pressure that exists within the digital landscape and some of these auctions that we're all fishing in. What are some examples where brands are maybe having some missteps for the, you know, IRL type of experiences where you're like, oh, we know what did did work and we know it didn't work when Casper was going into Target. I mean, what do you see today where you walk around and you're like, oh, that's actually not the best way to do that. Or I've seen data that shows otherwise, like what are some things to maybe avoid? So I think as a new brand um, that doesn't have a lot of awareness or hasn't driven kind of customer favorability or advocacy quite yet, having an inline placement is really only beneficial if you're able to compete at a price point. Um, That's, you know, compelling among the brands that you're sitting alongside. Um, And if it's not, then winning share at the shelf is going to be a lot harder. So price is kind of the first thing that I, I really kind of consider the biggest lever. And if you can't compete there, then you have to fight for you know, space to deliver a really compelling message or proposition. Mm -hmm. 
I think, you know, with Casper specifically, their price point was a lot higher for the products that they had in store. Um, and so when you see that price on an end cap or in line comparatively to the other points of relativity that sit alongside it, um, again, you have to have some pretty stellar packaging or messaging yeah. or, you know, a, a salesman with boots on ground to really tell you why it's worth that extra 30, 40, $50. And so we felt that um, really arriving at a price point that wouldn't defer a potential customer was the first thing that we needed to get right. And so we really value engineered everything from packaging um, through delivery and, and freight and, and distribution to make sure that we were able to show up competitively. And then from a marketing perspective, you know, there's a lot of kind of trade marketing that can happen with retail partners. And, and that's a little different than what you would typically do as an activation point through digital marketing or traditional marketing. And so that's the playbook that we really started to assemble to make sure that we had you know, high visibility in store or in app in some cases or on, you know, our partners e-commerce sites to kind of start building that frequency um, and overall validation to be able to, to win and create velocity within these store formats. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise, and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. What were some of the maybe like packaging or messaging that you tested because I could see for dog food, especially, I remember there being this whole wave of like, okay, you need grain-free, gluten-free, you need all this stuff. And then all of a sudden reports come out and it's like, uh-oh, dogs are getting sick by this new dog food. And there was a bunch of like these brands that were pretty big brands who had maybe tried to do, do an offshoot of like a healthier dog food. And they're like, don't give your dogs this. They need to, you know, apparently they do need gluten or something. It seems like there's a lot of mixed messaging out there. Like, so it seems like it could be difficult to maybe have that on a package. If, especially me as a consumer, I'm like, well, I don't know what they should have because I just tried to buy something healthy and apparently it's not healthy. Like, what did you guys lean on to actually resonate with your customers? So it's so funny you say that because I think that product marketing is so critical within this category and really arriving at propositions that are relevant and compelling to the customer who's buying the product for someone else technically yeah. um, is, is really like it requires a lot of experimentation um, in terms of A-B testing different messages across different customer cohorts. But if you look at the premium category specifically, the, the bulk of mass position brands are really designing diets for dogs that we can't necessarily identify with because they're assuming we have these wolf-like creatures or yeah. purebred show dogs that are highly active. And so just from an aesthetics perspective, we wanted to 
put something out there that immediately sparked joy and doing that through happy colors and doing that through dogs that look more like the dogs that we actually have um, was really like the first thing that we tried to achieve through um, the packaging design exercise. I would say like all brands are, are kind of similar in the sense that they promote the same things like either grain free or grain friendly diets or high protein diet um, or limited ingredient diets. And so um, we did a lot of testing to figure out which value propositions resonated most. And then also just again, visually made sure that you were able to delineate between proteins and superfoods and grain free or grain friendly so that the selection at the shelf um, was not a complicated or confusing one. But I think a lot of it has to do with just simplifying your messaging mm-hmm. and, and really being clear about what's important. Premium proteins, high quality ingredients, functional foods. And for us, we use a patented probiotic, but being really clear, I think, about those product propositions on the front of pack and on any packs that are placed um, on their sides is probably the most important thing um, in terms of messaging. Was there any surprises when you guys were testing that where you're like, oh, I'm surprised people actually, you know, are leaning towards that value proposition that maybe we weren't even considering? Actually, what you had mentioned, the grain-free versus grain-friendly debate Mm -hmm. um, was something where there was, you know, some reports released um, about DCM and it being harmful to dogs and actually causing death. And and because of that, uh, grain-free diet had kind of gotten a really bad reputation pretty quickly. And they were over 50% of the market as it relates to dry format foods. So that was something that we took an opportunity to editorialize and explain Mm -hmm. through our website and our digital storefront. Um, And then furthermore, I would just say that, you know, a lot of pet parents aren't familiar with how to understand an ingredient panel or a guaranteed analysis. Yep. And those are like the nutrition labels, right? That are the the kind of like human food equivalents in the dog food world. And mm-hmm. so understanding those is, is pretty important as well. And once you give some visibility in terms of what's appropriate in terms of inclusion levels, people can pretty quickly understand if they've got, you know, a premium food or a not so premium food. And so I would say those two assets were things that we made sure um, were really easy to understand and really clear in terms of messaging. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I always looked at those labels and it's like, you know, 90% protein. I'm like, great, I guess 90 is close to 100. Maybe that's great. Yeah. Oh, is that too much? I don't know. And then even thinking about, I mean, misconceptions around what should an animal be eating. I mean, there's been times when I've seen, you know, like, oh, bison, dog food. And in my head, I'm like, well, if my dog couldn't even attack a bison, why should it be eating something that big? Like, I don't know, maybe it should be eating like the salmon or something. It could actually get in the wild, even though my dog's not in the wild. But like, it seems like things that a lot of people never really have thought about and they just kind of like bought the food and never really thought too in depth until now when people are actually starting to think like, well, should they even be having that? And is that good for them? Totally, yeah. I I think that there's some really interesting novel proteins Um, I think at the end of the day, again, like simple is better. And so when you think about the food pyramid for humans, and then you kind of take it a step further and think about it for dogs, it's like whole foods and functional foods should really make up the majority of their diet. And then as it relates to proteins, 
um, or the number one ingredient, which is, is kind of the bulk of the diet. It's like, it's like the five first ingredients listed in a panel really make up the majority of that food. Mm-hmm. But protein should be lean and easy to process in nature. So when you think about some of these novel proteins, they're not as opposed to something that is uh, easier on the digestive system, like a, like a lean fish or a lean poultry item. Cool. So when I was looking at, you know, how we can order Jinx, I saw it kind of everywhere. Like you said, you're in Petco. I can get it from your website. I can, I think, get it from Postmates. How do you think about the strategy of kind of being everywhere? At least when I was looking around, it seemed like I could get you in a lot of places. Our primary business is done through our website. So it's thinkjinx.com. And the retail partners that are currently active are Petco.com, Bloomingdales.com, Rover.com, Target.com. And then we're also in Target stores. And so we're in a lot of places. We're going to be in a lot more in the next seven months. Um, And so we've got a really big retail partnership launching in Q1 of 2022. And then we're continuing to figure out the online distribution strategy outside of thinktanks.com. But really part of the original thesis was to create a better brand that was available through many access points. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we know that pet parents come in all shapes and sizes and some prefer to buy in store and some prefer to have it show up at their door every four weeks. And so we're trying to accommodate the bulk of those use cases, but retail partnerships is not only a really scalable strategy for a brand that is shelf stable, but one that also gets us, uh, I think, you know, frankly, like a, a more diversified customer mix. Mm-hmm. Right now, as you can imagine, our subscription business online through D2C is really kind of focused on this millennial dog parent cohort. And so when we start to show up in different store formats, specifically physical store formats, um, I think that profile is going to start to change. And then it really opens us up from an addressable market perspective. Got it. What's keeping you guys from moving onto Amazon? Is it, is it because it's harder to sell your value props there and kind of teach your new customers on why you're maybe better than a Rachel Ray Nutrish who all, you know, says limited ingredients, but like, are they, I don't know, like, or are there other factors on why you don't really want to be selling on Amazon? There are other factors. I think the most prominent one is probably you have to pay to play. Um, And it's not just kind of the margin structure based on if you're like a 1P or 3P retailer. Um, You typically, as as a new brand with that much um, awareness or recall, you have to participate in their monetization platform and really kind of buy impressions to make sure that you're showing up for relevant searches Mm -hmm. um, outside of like anything that would be considered branded that you would organically uh, show up for in, in terms of search results. So because, you know, there's a, there's a real kind of cost component to being able to create real volume and velocity specifically within the Amazon marketplace, we've avoided it so far. Got it. So the other thing I wanted to touch on was your partnerships because you guys have really unique ones around. I think you partnered with Berries and you did like a Valentine's Day one. And I want to hear a bit about, you know, who is coming up with what's a good partnership and how's it going to perform and also be fun for, you know, our customers. So, I mean, we just have a long list of brands that we adore Um, And I would say, you know, what's really important in terms of figuring out what might make for a great partnership is just having brand synergy, um, definitely shared values, and then some type of overlap or connective tissue in terms of the customers that we're targeting or the customers that we have. 
the partnership with Berries was a really fun one because I think, you know, for those that work out, um, we were all trying to figure out what that looked like in 2020 and how to create space to do yoga or, you know, any type of weight training or boxing or, or whatever you're into. Right. And so I know in my case, if I tried to do anything um, and I shut the door, my dogs would bark. And if I let them in, they would be fully disruptive in terms of my like workout program and even having 30 minutes to myself to like stretch and do some yoga or some Pilates. And so when we were talking to Barry's, we had originally started at like some type of sponsored email. And then, you know, we had kind of started to unpack what something virtual could look like in the form of experience if you were to figure out how to incorporate your dog into your workout mm-hmm. um, without, you know, going hiking or, or running outside. And so we designed a workout program. We opened it up um, to two classes, one for press and one for customers, where you're doing a series of workout moves in a small space in your home. You can also use your dog as an asset. Like how? <laughs> so, Tell, give me an example. What would I be doing with my dog? So I have, I have a 45 pound dog and then I have an 85 pound dog. So my 45 pound dog, I was able to pick up and do some squats with and some lunges with my 85 pound dog kind of like sat there and and jealously watched us. But that was the one that I was able to participate in. People with smaller dogs were also kind of using their dogs as basically as, as weights. Mm -hmm. And then I think the majority of people just have their dogs really like, you know, sitting on their mat or sitting under their feet and and becoming like an obstruction for them, like actually doing a successful workout. But I think the point was that, you know, we were trying to kind of get creative um, and solve for some of the pain points that we were all forced to kind of endure as we tried to figure out like how to make our lives normal in 2020. And so that one, that one was probably one of the more fun things that you know, we thought of bringing into the wellness category through this kind of like human and dog bond component. Yeah. I can see a lot of fun engagement and pictures coming from that. Were you able to maybe capitalize on that excitement even after the event and kind of keep the conversation going and keep that maybe mini community that was just built continuing to talk or what did that look like after the fact? Yeah. I mean, the, the live events, I think were the highlight of the partnership, but we certainly, um, participated in other touch points. So there was some sponsored emails. Um, and then of course we, we promoted that content across social to mm-hmm. both of our customer bases. And so, you know, because I, I would say almost half of their population are pet parents. Um, it was actually a really successful partnership in initiating, new customer acquisition because there were so many relevant people um, that I think just had this experience that truly resonated with them. So you're betting big on retail. You're betting big on IRL experiences. You're still, of course, doing all things digital. What maybe new things are you guys trying out or testing that you don't know if it'll work or not, but you're trying it out for the next year or two? So one thing that we just did uh, on a small scale that we're planning on implementing on a bigger scale is uh, doggy billboards. And so these are quite literally uh, doggy level advertising assets that we posted in dog parks or highly frequented dog areas. Wow, that's great. And so, I mean, truly, it's a billboard that you could pick up, but if you kind of photograph it properly, it looks like a marquee billboard that you would see on Sunset Boulevard in LA. And so... Yeah. We posted those. Um, we actually had them scented so they would attract dogs. And then we kind of filmed it from afar just to see what the interaction looked like. But 
it was viral. It was a hit. I think, you know, people who were there to experience them in person or people that saw the content online uh, really got a kick of kind of this activation that we did under this direct to dog marketing umbrella. And so that and, and other kind of just clever marketing tactics are really what we're thinking about funding as we close out the year and then also march into 2022 with larger marketing budgets and then also um, some marketing strategies that are really designed to support some new retail partners. I love that. Yeah. I was actually thinking earlier when you're talking about the workout stuff with berries, I'm like, oh, what if there's a little screen off to the side that distracted your dog and just had maybe a cat running around and kept them away from me. So my dog wouldn't just sit there and lick my arm the entire time while working out, but billboards, even more genius. I love that. All right. Well, let's move over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Terry? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. First, have you ever tasted any of your Jinx recipes? I have. And we just launched some of that content on TikTok. We actually did taste testing of all of our treats. So there's three soft turkey treats and two plant-based biscuits. Mm -hmm. Um, Myself and two of my colleagues did a taste test and and we're launching all of that content on our TikTok. That's great. Well, can you give us intel on what's your favorite? And did it actually taste good? Yeah, so the the biscuits were dry, but my favorite was the peanut butter and blueberry. It truly tasted like a dry peanut butter cracker. Um, And then the jerkies, while they smell really delicious, they almost smell like human beef jerky. Um, those were a little too intense for me. That's great. I can't wait to see that content. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? I would say that unpacking the difference between force versus power uh, is something that I was encouraged to explore as I was just navigating this kind of upwards trajectory in my career and building big teams and figuring how to work with complicated personalities on, on the leadership level. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, managing by influence versus force or power is something that I, I was really kind of challenged to consider and figure out how to work that into my style. Um, so that you can get people kind of doing what you think is right in terms of activation um, or production of strategy, but then also because they they also believe in it as well. Um, And I think, frankly, like debate is good for an organization, but it can sometimes lead to indecision. And so you really just have to kind of take some risks and chances. um, And I think, you know, make decisions that really enable some type of learning that you can then iterate on, even if it doesn't give you the successful outcome that you expect. Yeah. I love that. That's a good one. What's one of the biggest risks you've taken in business? I would say launching my own business. I think, you know, I was always really attracted to uh, entrepreneurial environments and startup culture. And I had worked for uh, three brands back to back and then did some advising and some consulting for early stage companies. And I knew that I wanted to take my swing. I just didn't necessarily have the idea yet. And so when I reconnected with my Casper colleagues, former Casper colleagues, and uh, they kind of presented what they were thinking and immediately resonated. But I just knew that the only thing stopping us from being successful was the fear that comes with failure. Mm -hmm. And so I had spoke to a lot of people and gotten a lot of solicited and unsolicited advice and, and really, you know, had become encouraged to just have that confidence to, to take a swing and and work as hard as you could with really good intention. And, you know, just hope that the successful outcome would eventually come. And that's great. We're glad you did. 
really good. <laughs> What's one thing you're secretly curious about? Secretly curious. Um, I'm secretly curious about how people with children maintain their entrepreneurial positions because I've got two dogs and a cat and a partner, mm-hmm. and I can't even imagine how I would think about time management and just really how to fuel my own energy and motivation by having a kid (laughs) running around that I'm responsible for. I think that I've never had such a deep appreciation as I have in working with my teammates who have families and they show up and they work late and they're so overly committed to what we're building. Um, And I have no idea how they do it because I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm barely keeping my head above water without children. Yeah, I love that. I don't think we know how we're doing it either. So if anyone knows that answer, (laughs) I don't know how I'm doing that. I know Hillary always (laughs) asks me, how are you alive right now, Stephanie? You didn't sleep last night at all. So, yep, I agree on that. All right, Terry. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It was really fun to hear about what you guys are up to. Where can we find out more about you and Jinx? So I am at Rockovich on Twitter. I am at Terry Rockovich on Instagram. Um, and then Jinx is available to all at thinkjinx.com. Amazing. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was so nice meeting you. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.